Midway along the journey of our life, I woke to find myself in a dark wood. This is the first line of one of the world's great epic poems. And I've not actually read the whole poem myself, but this is a classic first line. And not long ago, I came across this first line just all by itself. And I was startled to find tears springing to my eyes as I read it. Midway along the journey of our life, I woke to find myself in a dark wood. One of the things that makes great stories great is that they have the power to resonate with people across cultures, across continents, across centuries. And these words, written 700 years ago in a language I don't even speak, resonated with me because it expresses a nearly universal experience. Scholars have a phrase for opening lines like this one, in medias race, which just means in the middle of things. And all of us arrive on this planet as vulnerable and ignorant babies in the middle of a world where things are already in motion. Things happen around us. Things happen to us. By the time we wake up to our lives and become capable of doing some things on our own, we're already in the middle of things, living in a story not entirely of our own making. Sometimes it's hard to find the narrative thread of our lives, much less predict the ending. I imagine you had seasons in your life where things seem orderly and stable, where you are setting goals and making things happen according to a plan that you've devised. You've probably also had seasons that seemed fairly aimless. You can't see or don't care what's ahead. You just do the next thing that has to be done and you hope for the best. And maybe you've been knocked right out of the story that you've been living and you've landed in a dark wood, disoriented and in pain. When we're in the middle of things and the end is uncertain, it can be hard to carry on. I've heard not one but two stories on NPR recently that featured at-risk youths who had a chance to write down their own autobiographies as stories or in plays or in poems. And it turns out that even just the act of understanding our lives as a story has the power to open us up to hope and bring about change. The promise of God is that we will have a good end. And the promises of God go even further than that. The promise of the resurrection is that those whose lives are embedded in God's purpose are assured of a good end. We're not saved from suffering or uncertainty in this life, and we don't need to be. Living in the middle of things is a common human experience, the experience of limited and finite creatures, and we don't need to be saved from being human. We need to be saved from sin and from death. We need to have the assurance of the good ending that was purchased for us in the resurrection of Jesus. Now, our sermon passage today comes from a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians in Rome. And it begins in chapter 8, verse 28, with a simple promise. All things work together for good. Now, without the undergirding of the rest of this passage, this promise can read like a cheap platitude. 
We're all familiar with the ways that Christians and others can take profound scriptural truths and reduce them to a one-size-fits-all pep talk that helps us squish down negative emotions or helps us avoid dealing with our doubts. And if we lift this promise out of context, we can try to imagine that the universe itself is rooting for us and swallow it like a placebo to keep our fears at bay and see how that works. (laughs) But if we resist the temptation to lift this glorious promise out of this setting that Paul has carefully embedded it in, we are exposed to its power. Chapter 8 of this letter to the Romans is a fountainhead of assurance for believers in Jesus. Pastor Paul wrote this letter to provide substantial, meaty, life-changing encouragement to his beloved brothers and sisters in Rome. Now, it is a very dense theological work, but this is boots-on-the-ground theology, written by someone who knew what it was to suffer intensely and who nevertheless believed that none of his suffering compared to the good end that was ahead of him. Paul begins by giving us knowledge that even in the middle of things, even in the middle of a dark wood, we can hang on to. He writes, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That knowledge is accessed by faith, but it is presented here as a certain, sure knowledge. Whatever the current ratio of order to chaos in our lives, whether we are crushing all our goals or adrift in a haze of confusion, Paul is telling us that God's work for good is constant. And not only is God working for good, he is able to use all things to bring about that goodness. This is amazing good news. It's so good that I think most of us feel a little bit of a push-pull when we hear it. Of course, we want to believe that our lives are going to work out okay. We actually need to believe that our lives are going to work out okay. And so we feel pulled toward that knowledge, toward that promise. But the evidence for it sometimes seems a little sketchy. We can't know from experience that things will work out okay. And so we also push back against this knowledge. How can we know for certain that the stories we're living will end well? Honestly, we can't. That is, no living human being can testify from personal experience that their life ended well because every living human being is still in the middle of things. Everybody we talk to is still inside the earthly part of their story and they cannot see things from the end, from outside time. It would be different if we could hear from someone who lived out all of his or her days, died and was able to view all these temporal lives from internal perspective. That person could let us know with authority whether any of these confusing, pain-filled lives we lead end in goodness and glory because they're able to see the end. If only someone could live out their life on this earth, gain some real perspective, and come back and tell us what's what. If only we knew someone who died and came to life again. (laughs) 
<laughs> of course, we do know someone who claimed to do exactly that. And we have the testimony of hundreds who were able to see him and interact with him after he did that. There is one who lived in the middle of things, suffered a painful and humiliating death, and then lived again. That man is Jesus Christ, and he is the only one with authority to speak into our lives in this way, to tell us that we are assured in God of a good ending. If the promise of a good end is not rooted in the resurrection, it has no more power than any other platitude we tell ourselves to get through the day. But if Jesus Christ did rise from the dead, we can know for sure that even a life of extreme suffering can end not just well, but in glory. This life that ends well belongs to those who are intimately connected to God. Paul specifies that all things work together for the good of those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. And of course, those are not two separate categories. Those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose, those are two ways of describing the same people. When Paul speaks of those who love God as a category of people, he's referencing an Old Testament manner of identifying God's set-apart chosen people those who are sons and daughters in God's family. And thankfully, when we assess whether or not we love God, whether these promises apply to us or not, we don't have to reference our emotional state toward God at the moment. If you have placed your faith in Jesus and been adopted as a son or daughter of God, you love God. It's similar to the state of marriage. If you have covenanted yourself in marriage, to a spouse and are remaining active in that marriage, you qualify as a spouse lover. Even if the two of you are in the middle of a terrible argument and you don't particularly like them at all in the moment. So it is with God. If you have covenanted with him in baptism and have placed your faith in Jesus, you are one of God's people. You're a God lover. Those according to, called according to his purpose references those who are in fact aligned with the purpose of God. The thrust of God's love is purposeful. He has in mind for us a state of unimaginable glory. His people are people who have expressly joined themselves to him in that purpose. It is for those people all things work together for good. Now, it's outside the scope of this passage and this sermon to talk in depth about why some are excluded from the promise of the resurrection. But it's a really important question, and it's one that Paul addresses with thoroughness earlier in the same letter. Earlier in Romans, Paul lays out exactly how it is possible to be reconciled with God. For, enough, for now, it's enough to know that although the promises of God are offered to all, the invitation is to all, they apply to those who have entrusted themselves to the resurrected one and lean on him alone. And now Paul begins to expand on this promise. For those whom he, that is God, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, these are a lot of abstract words, including some pretty technical terms, 
But each one of these are heavy action verbs for new, predestined, called, justified, glorified. And each one of them pulls back the curtain of time to reveal how God has connected us to an eternal destiny that is good. Paul touches on these five foundational ways that God has secured us in a life that will end well. Now, God is eternal and exists outside of time, and that is part of what lends us assurance. His good purposes for us remain unshaken by the things that we're in the middle of. And at the same time, all five of these acts of God have significant impact on our lives lived in the middle of things. That's why Paul is telling us about them. But from our human perspective, we can think of these these five actions of God in, in different ways. We can think of two of God's actions reaching toward us from the past to anchor us in God's will. One of them is an act that we can actively participate in during our lifetime. And two of his actions reach toward us from the future to also anchor us in his will. Maybe you can think of it as a five-point harness in a race car uh, that keep us in the center of God's goodwill for us, no matter what kind of craziness is happening around us. We'll start with two events that, from our perspective, began long before we did, long before our own lives began. God's foreknowledge and his predestination. From before the beginning of time, from before the foundations of the universe were laid, before anything, God knew us. The word for knew sounds like it could be an intellectual type of knowledge, as in God knew that eventually billions of human beings would exist on the planet he created, and he knew stuff about each one of us. But actually, this foreknowledge indicates knowledge of a personal nature. It is a relational knowing, an intimate knowing. Before the beginning of time, before you were born, before your parents were born, before your parents, 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 going back generations through the millennia, you were seen, known, and loved by the Father. Think of it. You have never known a time in your life when you have not been truly seen, fully known, and deeply loved. And that's whether or not that love was reflected well through your parents, through your siblings, through those around you. You have been, from the moment of conception, a constant recipient of this knowledge of love. You've been seen and known and loved your whole life. Those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Even before sin and death came to divide us from God, before there was a need for God's son to come and die, God's plan was still that Jesus would win for us a resurrected body. The destiny, the end point of our lives, is to become siblings of Jesus, conformed to his likeness. On the one hand, Jesus is a person like no other. As both God and man, his life and his death and his resurrection were totally unique. 
At the same time, the resurrection of Jesus was never meant to be a singular event. Jesus did not die and rise to life again as some sort of impressive spectacle that we're supposed to stand back and watch and applaud. Jesus came to live and die again so that we, his little brothers and his little sisters, might follow him into life in a resurrected body like his. He didn't come to earth just to leave again empty-handed. The whole point was to make it possible for us to join him and live in his family. God, who knew us before our birth, has destined us to bear the family image of God with Jesus as our big brother and with God as our Abba Father. Moving into verse 30, those whom God predestined, he also called. At the same time that God knew and purposed us to make us into his own son likeness, he called out to us. Earlier in Greek history, the word ecclesia, which is translated here as called, referred to an assembly of people who had been summoned out from the groups of people to a political gathering. Ecclesia literally meant called out ones. Later on, though, this term becomes applied to the church. We are those who are summoned to come out of the world and into the household of faith. We are are the ones called out from every tribe, nation, and tongue. We are called out, and God wills then our resurrection, our righteousness, sorry, and our glory. And he not only wills this, he makes it happen. In fact, our future justification and glorification are such a done deal in God's eyes that Paul writes about it in the past tense here. Those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. When God justifies us, he declares us righteous, and we become righteous. This, to me, is probably the most incredibly loving of these five acts. I can imagine God knowing and predestining and calling out a family for himself, but when you think that he did this, He knew and he destined and he called to himself. He he called out people who are wicked and nasty, petty, sinful people like you and I. His love takes on a whole new meaning. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were his enemies, God took action and reconciled us to himself through the death of Jesus. This immense, incredible security that Paul is preaching about in these little verses, we couldn't make any of this happen. We are desperately helpless and wicked people, each one of us. When God saw us and knew us before the foundations of the earth were laid, he knew all the grossness and shabbiness that we're capable of. He knows all the icky, greedy, sneaky stuff we've done, and he loved us. He loved us anyway. He chose us anyway, and he gives us the gift of repentance and faith so that we may be completely cleansed of sin and shame and guilt, and we may put on the righteousness of Jesus himself. Against all reason, God makes us as pure and holy as Jesus himself. 
And at the end of our lives, this righteousness that we bear imperfectly now will be completed and we will be glorified. This is the same glory Paul spoke of in his letters to the church in Corinth. Speaking of the future resurrection of our physical bodies, Paul writes that our bodies are laid in the ground in dishonor, but raised in glory. He promises that the end of our lives, we will behold the glory of the Lord with unveiled faces and be changed in his likeness from one degree of glory to the next. Brothers and sisters, we have a glorious end ahead. God's good purposes for us ensure that our lives will end, our stories will end not just well, but in glory. His purposes for us are unshakable, and they are as true and real for us on our darkest days as they are on those few precious days when we can see and feel his goodness. What does it look like to let the weight of God's purpose permeate and transform our stories right where we are living in the middle of things? We can endure a lot if we are assured of our purpose and our security, our forgiveness and our future glory. Knowing the end makes a practical difference in our lives. I'll give an example. Last July, my perfectly sound, beautifully healthy youngest child suddenly lost her ability to speak. She didn't lose it completely, but substantially. She was not able to find words. She couldn't complete her sentences. And I found myself in a dark wood, looking at my daughter's face, realizing that she could no longer communicate her thoughts to me. And I didn't know if she ever would again. There were other alarming symptoms, and we took her to the emergency room where doctors proposed three possible explanations. A stroke, a seizure, or a migraine. Three different possibilities, three very different endings. I didn't know how this episode would end. I was filled with horror, and it was hard to function well. It is hard to live without the assurance of a good end. Well, the doctors ruled out a stroke, and the tentative diagnosis we were given was a migraine, a happy ending. No permanent damage, full recovery, yay, life returns to normal. And then earlier this spring, she had a second episode, very similar to the first. We took her back to the ER with the same symptoms. It was still scary. There was still a possibility that she was suffering from seizures that could change the trajectory of her life. There was still suffering including five uncomfortable hours of worry lost in the emergency room. It took a toll on my daughter. It took a toll on the rest of us. But the difference between this episode and the first one was enormous, not because of an absence of suffering and uncertainty, but because of the real presence of hope. Based on the testimony and authority of medical professionals, I had been able to lay hold of a reasonable like likelihood that all would end well. In a similar way, the assurance that God gives based on the authority of the resurrection that our lives will end well can transform our lives. 
but to reap the fullest benefits of the encouragement that God wants to impart to us through the words of his servant Paul, the gospel truth of this text must be applied to our lives. How can these profound truths bear fruit in our lives rather than remaining at the level of good ideas? I think one straightforward thing every every believer can do is to pray. And so we're actually going to take a few minutes right now in the service to ask the Holy Spirit, who has been sent by the Father to teach us all things, to help move these realities from our heads into our hearts, into our bodies, and through our lives. I'd like to ask everyone to kind of settle in in preparation to pray together. You may close your eyes now, or you can do it a little later. Um, Before we begin, I'm going to give a few words of instruction. At one point, I'm going to invite you to lay your hand on your heart, if you wish. And as I pray, you can repeat the words of my prayer, either silently or aloud. But I invite you now to identify an area of your life where you feel like you are in a dark wood. That is an area of confusion or pain or anxiety. Just ask the Holy Spirit to bring an area that is a dark wood to you. And as we pray, the Holy Spirit may bring a helpful image or analogy to your mind that will help you remember the purposes of God for you, the ways in which he's working all things together for good. Feel free to kind of look around for that image or picture. These can be extremely helpful to mark in your mind now and to return to later in a time of need. Uh, Two different types of images came to my mind as I was preparing this message, so you can feel free to borrow these if that's helpful. Uh, The first is an architectural sort of image. You can picture these five truths as the foundation and pillars that undergird your whole life, a sort of cosmic infrastructure that God has built around or under you. The second image might be a good one for someone who's suffered emotional or relational wounds, perhaps a physical injury or infirmness, or who suffers from profound loneliness. If that's the case, you might picture God dressing that wound with these powerful truths, applying them like an ointment, or wrapping them around you like an ace bandage tightly to protect and to strengthen you. Images are helpful, but if none come to mind, no worries. You can simply concentrate on the words of the prayer, I'll be praying. And if you're not a believer or if you're uncomfortable with this prayer for any reason, please know that there's no pressure to participate. No one can tell the difference between just sitting quietly and praying quietly. Um, Or if you like, you can use this time to pray your own prayer before the Father who loves you so dearly. I'll pause after each sentence. Uh, Please pray this prayer after me, either silently or quietly aloud. And you can go ahead and place your hand over your heart now as we begin, if you wish. Dear Holy Father, thank you for revealing your good and loving purposes for my life. Thank you that because of the work of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, my life is secured in you. Thank you for the promise of a good end to my life. Holy Spirit, take these truths revealed in Scripture and make them live in my life.
From before the foundation of the world, God the Father saw me, knew me, and loved me. God sent his son Jesus through suffering and death so that Jesus could bring me along with him into new and everlasting life as his little sister or little brother. God has called me out from among all the peoples of the earth to follow him and obey him. God has removed all my sin from me and covered me with his perfect righteousness. At the end of my days, God will glorify me. Nothing can snatch me out of his hand. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.